Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice the amount of renewable energy compared to the state average. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org. This COP, we've really seen a major shift towards dedicated financial windows on agreements, taking stock on what 2030 looks like, what we've achieved so far and what's necessary and possible and already underway sort of to, to limit our warming to 1.5 degrees. Tons of countries have quadrupled their commitments to climate finance. Now we need to move into implementation. I, I feel that this COP is the last COP of commitments and we need to really start moving into that phase of implementation. Hello, this is the Political Climate Podcast presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and Canary Media. I'm your host, Julia Piper. Greetings from the Heathrow Airport as I work my way home to Los Angeles from the COP26 meeting in Glasgow, Scotland. It has been a busy, inspiring, discouraging, and tiring week all at once, but I do have to say that I'm leaving Glasgow pretty fulfilled. The climate crisis looms large, I think we all know that, but I have to say I was heartened to be reminded of the fact that there are just so many brilliant people around the world who have dedicated their lives to addressing this challenge. They bring expertise in just so many different fields, uh, from transportation to health, gender, uh, food systems, energy, natural conservation, and so much more. It just is so inspiring to see this collective come together and work on real solutions. I think the media attention has also been great. There have been calls also around the world for more bold action. So I have to say that as I walked through this massive climate demonstration over the weekend led by Greta Thunberg and others, there was a sense of outrage and frustration, but also energy and I think engagement. You know, not everyone in the climate community is on the same page, but I think there's a sense coming out of COP right now that attendees are really, you know, they're at least working from the same book, if you will. You know, not the same page, but working from the same book. And that's a positive development. And it was funny, you know, we're in this protest and it's raining and people are banging drums and going on. And then suddenly the sun just comes out and two double rainbows appear and there are cheers that erupt. And it just for a moment felt like maybe we're on the right path. And the next day after that demonstration, I heard climate activist Shia Bastida speak at the World Climate Summit, which I had the opportunity to emcee actually over two days. And during that speech, she shared an African proverb. She said, the youth walk fast, but the elders know the road. She called for honest dialogues from government and leaders in the private sector on what it's going to take to meet our climate goals. And that honestly felt like an evolution from outrage on the face of it to sort of action and commitment from all parties on how to get climate action done in a meaningful way. Now, as I record this on a Wednesday, preparing to board my flight, the official COP negotiations are ongoing. And there's much to be desired, let's be clear. The Chinese and Russian leaders have been called out for skipping the event. Also, the world's most vulnerable countries were underrepresented at COP, while oil and gas-affiliated groups had larger numbers in attendance than any delegation of any single nation. 
There are also contentious negotiations on Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, which seeks to strengthen the integrity of carbon markets and create a new global carbon offsetting mechanism. And those negotiations continue to move slowly. And within that, there's disagreement. So while some countries' national climate pledges hinge on the use of international cooperation through carbon markets, some activists think that carbon markets are nothing more than greenwashing and a way to delay making real emissions cuts. So same book, different pages. Also, before COP26, wealthy countries admitted that they probably won't meet their $100 billion climate finance target until 2023. It's already delayed, and they've barely started on a plan for climate finance after 2025 when the current pledge ends. So again, it's a mixed bag. There's outrage and frustration, but also optimism and inspiration. On the positive side, though, here are some of the bigger commitments. Over 100 national governments, cities, states, and major businesses signed a commitment to end the sale of internal combustion engines by 2035 in leading markets and 2040 worldwide. And while there are very real barriers for indigenous communities hoping to influence the COP negotiations, we did see several governments and philanthropies announce $1.7 billion in forest protection and support for indigenous peoples specifically in protecting forests and lands under their stewardship, which is where 80% of the world's biodiversity is located. Belize became the first country to do a debt conversion for ocean preservation. Also, more than 40 countries, including Poland, Vietnam, and Chile, pledged to phase out coal, although China, India, and the U.S. were missing from that agreement. India committed to net zero emissions by 2070, which was, I will admit, critiqued for being decades beyond the time frame that nations need to decarbonize, but it was also praised for its honesty and what it would really take to meet that goal for India. And the country's new commitment to deploy 500 gigawatts of renewables by 2030 is nothing to sneer at. Also, while the rest of the world is dubious, the Biden administration did make a compelling case that the U.S. is back on the scene. The U.S. and EU announced a global pledge to slash methane. The U.S. doubled its climate finance commitment to $11 billion per year. America also joined 20 other countries in committing to stop financing of fossil fuels abroad, which we'll talk about a bit later on in this show. Plus, we saw the $1.2 billion bipartisan infrastructure bill passed during COP, which will boost investments in a cleaner power system, among other things. And the world is watching to see if Democrats will pass the even bigger Boulder Build Back Better Act with $550 billion for climate-related policies and programs. So is it enough? No. But these incremental achievements are notable given that every incremental degree in warming we see has an exponential impact on people and the planet. So we have a foundation. Now it's a matter of getting it done. With all the climate commitments announced to date, the International Energy Agency believes it would keep global warming below 2 degrees Celsius. That is, of course, if those commitments are achieved. So it's time, I think, now to move on from goals to talk about implementation. And I think that's really a major theme coming out of COP this week. In some ways, the commitments that we have on paper are all that we have. The Paris Agreement itself is voluntary. It doesn't really have any teeth or a way to enforce compliance. So even as negotiations continue this week, I think we have to look to the commitments that have already been made and find out how they're going to be realized and hold the commitments to task and the committers to task on following through. And that's going to require everybody, government, private sector, civil society, others. You know, we have the why now. We even know what we need to do. The technologies and solutions are there. Now we're in the decade of how. And that's why I want to focus on climate finance for the remainder of this episode. Finance on its own won't create the change we need to see in the world, but it is a change agent. It's a way to unlock and accelerate climate action. During the first week of COP, UN Special Envoy Mark Carney announced that the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, or GFANS, a consortium of the largest global financial institutions with $130 trillion in assets under management, are now all aligned with net zero emissions goals. 
That's a big statement. It's grandiose, almost so big, in fact, that it doesn't seem meaningful. So in this episode, to kick it off, we're going to break down what the G-Fans pledge is all about. And we're going to do that with Justin Guay, Director for Global Climate Strategy at the Sunrise Project, where he focuses on global efforts to transition energy systems from fossil fuels to clean energy with a special focus on international finance. In the second half of this episode, I speak to Benjamin Bartle, project director with RMI's Climate Finance Access Network, CFAN, about the $100 billion in climate finance committed from nations, high-income nations, that they pledge to give to lower-income countries. We talk about what it will really take to put those dollars to work, even after they've already been pledged. Oof. Oh, that's me. So here's my dispatch from COP26, kicking it off with Justin Guay of the Sunrise Project. We are here in the basement of a Glasgow bar, Justin Guay. Quite a hip bar, I must say. There's a bunch of uh, pop star portraits looking at us. This is very cool. Bit creepy, too. This is a classic, though, post-cop encounter, right? You just grab a pint after the full day of plenaries. How are you feeling today after, I think, we're on day three or four of cop? Where are we? What are we doing here? It feels like many, many more days than day three, I can say that. Um, <laughs> I've been here about a week, and uh, yeah, I'm feeling, I'm feeling a bit tired. Uh, long days, long nights, but um, glad to be here. There's, you know, there's interesting things happening, so I'm looking forward to talking about it. So today was Climate Finance Day. People know that Mark Carney led the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero in making a big announcement today. And that was that these financial groups with assets of more than $130 trillion said they would commit to cutting their emissions. Now, that's a big top line number. People maybe saw in the headlines, $130 trillion worth of assets committed to climate action and reaching net zero. That is not exactly what it means, though. First, walk us through the top line takeaway of what that $130 trillion commitment means and does it really have much meaning in the context of meeting our climate goals? I think that's exactly the question. So what the $130 trillion figure means is that the balance sheet of every financial institution that has signed up to GFANS, which is the worst acronym in the entire world, (laughs) um, is counted towards that figure. So basically, it's all of the assets of all of these institutions theoretically pledged towards being managed to a net zero transition by 2050. On the surface, that seems like a big deal. It's an awfully big number, uh, awfully large number of institutions, theoretically at least, on the same path as the rest of us. The problem is as soon as you lift up the hood and look underneath, there's not a whole lot there. Uh, And worryingly, for myself and many others who are paying close attention to this, they are pretty clearly trying to avoid the tough decisions. Um, Namely, what are we going to do about the finance that's flowing to coal, oil, and gas? And so just to give you a sense, $4 trillion has been lent from global banks around the world to fossil fuels just since the Paris Agreement alone. All those same banks have joined GFANS. And the question becomes, you know, if you didn't get the message in Paris, are you getting the message in Glasgow? Are you really going to change? And I think that's the the healthy skepticism that GFANS has been met with here in Glasgow. Yeah. So to look beneath the hood, as you say, 
there are different, and I think by the uh, financial institution's own admission, different timelines they have in mind for when they would try and uh, reduce uh, the carbon intensity of their portfolios. I think I saw another institution or one in particular say that they were going to really only target to fully decarbonize 36% of their portfolio. So again, that takes that $130 trillion top line down to like, no, we're really talking about X number of trillion or maybe even billions of capital that would truly be decarbonized. Is that a fair framing? Absolutely. So the thing to remember is that GFANS is an alliance of alliances. So, you know, I know we're all getting a bit sick of the net zero commitments, but uh, it's important to understand that. And so what you're referencing is the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative, uh, which was uh, they announced their targets earlier in the week. And the average of the asset managers that contributed their pledges to that initiative was 35 percent which means the other 65% of their portfolio can keep on wrecking the place, financing coal, oil, and gas. And I think that's pretty problematic when you think about you know where we are today, how long we've known about the climate problem, the fact that these institutions are showing up to these incredibly important global events and saying, we are 35% in. 35% in 100% of the time. That's right. <laughs> it's like That's right. 100% in, 35% <laughs> for real though. Yeah. And, and to play devil's advocate here, because I can be accused of being a little Pollyannish, but I like to put it in real world context. This kind of announcement was not on the radar six years ago in Paris. I mean, the fact that we have this engagement, I do think is a, is a win. It's more billions and trillions than before. Um, and so to that end, is this not a meaningful development? Meaning that Glasgow, we can say, look, it, there were meaningful commitments made. It's a place where commitments happen, not where the real work happens. That happens tomorrow and the next day and the next day. But would you put some sense of optimism around this? I would say it's what we make of it. And so, you know, it's kind of the, and I hate to quote our dear friend George W. Bush, but, you know, fool me once and I can't be fooled again. Um, <laughs> and so... I guess my optimism would lie in the notion that I believe that the global community is increasingly paying close attention to corporate America, increasingly close attention to financial institutions. And I think that there is value in bringing them into the conversation and getting them to make these commitments even as abstracted and high level as they are, because I very much believe that the pressure is only going to increase to actually deliver. And I think that this is going to force them to start having some of those harder conversations where the rubber really meets the road. And so I think it's it's possible to squint and have some uh, Pollyannish hope. But, you know, I, I think I'm just a bit of a hard-nosed realist about what it's going to take. But I do believe that there's going to be a lot of eyes on this in particular. And so in that sense, I think there is a chance that we see some good things come out of this. So we talked about the top line announcement today that sort of kicked off the finance day at COP in Glasgow. There were also comments from the UK that they were going to become a net zero financial center. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, this is about really looking at the global financial system itself and figuring out how to rewire it in a way that there's proper reporting and data and, and actions, maybe even pushing for disclosure, surveillance. That's a lot of terms I just threw out, but actually really depends on whether there's teeth to any of them that uh, I think the, the words become meaningful. But walk us through what it means to have the UK become a financial center for net zero in this way. I think that's a very good question, and it's important to juxtapose it to GFANS. So, and I, again, I apologize for even using that term. <laughs> but GFANS is a voluntary initiative. So this is about what companies uh, and financial institutions are willing to do of their own accord. 
we all know that there is only so far that companies can go uh, before they hit a certain boundary of what they're willing to do. And so what the UK government has done is set out a path towards real regulation, trying to actually force the financial institution to begin to plan that, that transition. And so the, the most important thing that came out of that announcement is that they are going to mandate transition plans for every company in the United Kingdom. That's a really big deal as a global financial center. You know, London is number one, number two, uh, number three, depending on how you kind of rank their clout and influence. Uh, and so what they're doing is both directly impacting a significant number of companies and a significant amount of financial flows, but they're also setting a global bar and a global precedent. And so I think the thing that could become quite interesting coming off the back of that announcement is that, you know, if you have financial institutions making voluntary commitments, which creates political space. And then you have regulators taking that space and creating new rules of the road, which then creates a credible threat of regulation that moves financial institutions to do more. You create a bit of a virtuous cycle. And so I think the UK becoming the first, you know, quote unquote, net zero financial center, it helps start that process. It also helps set a global bar, a global precedent. And, you know, really all eyes are now on the United States in particular, who has done very little on the financial regulatory front. So I think I think that's actually quite a quite an important piece that came out of Finance Day. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to what it really means in practice. You know, what are the details of those transition plans? Who's judging those transition plans? How do they treat the all important question of what we do with coal, oil and gas? But I think it's a very, very important first step. And to be clear, this is, again, something more like disclosure than it is regulation, what the UK is doing. You're talking about sort of the in-between step from like a commitment to now, I guess, putting the pieces in place, but they have not gone as far as mandates. Is that right? Well, they're, what they're doing is mandating a plan. They're saying, you got to come up with a plan. Got now, it. they're not necessarily saying what needs to be in that plan. Uh, they're not necessarily saying what happens if you fail to live up to your plan. But in that sense, it is actually real regulation. And I think that's an important step because it's it's moving us from a voluntary regime into a much more mandatory regime. And so that's that's why I think it's so, so significant. So Secretary Janet Yellen did speak at COP today, and she said, I'm quoting, I'm pleased to join the UK in announcing that the United States also intends to fully support the Climate Investment Fund's capital markets mechanism. That's what we're talking about, this UK commitment. So many words, so many terms. Um, and she said that through an innovative leveraging structure, this initiative will help attract significant new private climate finance and provide $500 million per year to the Clean Technology Fund's programming she goes on from there, but it sounds as though she's endorsing this, is what I'm getting to, um, in making this statement. So does that mean that the U.S. could follow suit and maybe require plans for its financial institutions to act on climate? I certainly hope that the United States follows the U.K.'s lead, but I'm not holding my breath. Uh, so right before we joined the party in Glasgow, the Treasury helped release a much-anticipated report from the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which did establish climate as a systemic risk, uh, establishing it as a threat on par with the 2008 subprime crisis, you know, subprime investments, which led to a financial meltdown. Climate will be the next version of that financial meltdown is essentially what they said, which should open the door to actual regulation and moves like this to force companies to establish transition plans, force banks to stop lending to coal, oil, and gas, but they stopped well short of getting to those kind of firm measures. So I don't think that right now the United States is anywhere near the kind of leadership that the UK has just shown here. However, I do think that there will be increased expectations and eyes on what Secretary Yellen and other financial regulators do 
once we come out of Glasgow. Aren't they doing something? Like since President Biden took power, they have made some announcements on this front. Can you speak to what those are in the U.S. specifically? The primary thing they've done is release this Financial Stability Oversight Council report, which, again, established uh, climate as a risk. It also suggested a series of measures they could do primarily focused on disclosing that risk. Uh, so they stopped well short of the things they could do to actually mitigate the, the risk um, that climate poses to the financial system. So I think it's fair to say that they have opened the door, that financial regulators are paying closer attention to this. But uh, I think we still have a ways to go before I would feel safe that they are safeguarding the system and we are not going to see a really bad rerun of 2008. So one other item I wanted to talk to you about was maybe not as front of the newspaper, but 20 countries did pledge to end finance for overseas fossil fuel projects, the UK among them. Um, I'm not sure if the US is, but could you walk us through what that announcement is and how, how significant it is? So this is where I think it's okay to be Pollyannish. This is a big deal. This is important. So rewind to the Obama administration, a bunch of countries essentially normalized the notion that we should stop financing coal abroad, that that was an unabated bad. We just shouldn't be in the business of financing new coal plants. Fast forward to today and what the Biden administration and the UK government are saying now is that, you know, it's not just coal. Actually, we also should stop financing new oil and gas. And given the particularly important role public finance can play in de-risking and supporting the expansion of coal, oil, and gas around the world, the fact that these 20 countries, that uh, I think the announcement was around $20 billion, if I'm not mistaken, $20 billion worth of public money is now being taken off the table, that's a, a really big deal. So I, I think that is quite big news. I think the UK government deserves a bunch of, uh, of applause. And I actually think the Biden administration uh, and Treasury deserve quite a bit of applause for doing that. I take your point that this is significant in diverting money away from fossil fuels. I wonder how that plays out. Does that mean like the World Bank does not finance a coal plant in South Africa? Is that the upshot? Exactly. And actually, since you just mentioned South Africa, I think there's a question now. You've got all this money sloshing around the international system. You've got the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, all of these different IFIs who have, you know, while they're not enormous balance sheets, they're significant. And the question now becomes, okay, how do they use that money to support the transition? And so one of the other very interesting things that has happened over the last couple of days here at the COP is that we've seen several coal plant retirement finance facilities announced. So a group of donor nations committed to South Africa to support a just energy transition and help them get off coal. The Asian Development Bank committed to uh, the first steps of a process to develop a new facility that would help the Philippines and Indonesia get off of coal. And then the Climate Investment Funds also committed, I think it was $2 billion, to support countries around the world to get off of coal. And so you can see the common thread there. We are very clearly normalizing the notion that not only do we need to shift public money and stop financing coal, we actually need to pony up resources so that they can shut those assets down and repurpose them and build clean energy in their place. And so I think that's a really big deal. And if we started shifting um, all of the million or all of the billions of dollars that sit on balance sheets of the World Bank and all these other multilaterals, we could get a long, long way down the road of this transition. And to be clear, that happens all separately from what we were talking about with G fans and Mark Carney, which is private and public financial institutions like the Wall Streets of the world. You're saying the development banks themselves are doing separate work on, on this end. That's right, though, of course, there is a link between public money and private money in the sense that public money used well and wisely should de-risk and draw in 
private capital because they can't do this job by themselves. So I think it's important to remember that it's not as though the World Bank runs around and says, I'm going to finance the entirety of a project. They will put down a first loss layer. They will put down a junior tranche and then other investors will come in behind them. And that's why their role is so important and catalytic. Now, that is at least the theoretical notion. I think the reality uh, when it comes to how these, how wisely these institutions use their money is very different. And I was actually just reading um, a report from the Overseas Development Institute, which said that, you know, right now the public narrative is that we need to leverage public finance to unlock the trillions for clean energy development. And so the notion is that, you know, every dollar of public money should be leveraging 10, 20x private money. Uh, the reality, according to ODI, is that for every dollar of public money that we have been marshalling, we have only been able to leverage 37 cents. Mm -hmm. So we're not even doing a one-to-one -one leveraging. We're actually losing money every time we deploy a public dollar. So there is a whole job to be done in repurposing and rethinking that international architecture so that it's ready to support the clean energy transition. Wow, that's a really interesting takeaway. I have two last questions for you. Quickly on the development banks, because I've heard this come up. How does that affect the U.S. geopolitically? And maybe an unfair question to ask you, but I do hear this, that when the World Bank refuses to fund a coal project, that means that that relationship with that country is potentially damaged or it's just a missed opportunity to develop one, which could meet other strategic goals for the nation. Do you come up against this in your work and what's the response you give? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that it's incumbent upon all of those institutions to have what we would call a clean counteroffer. So the notion is not that you're turning them away and you're denying them access to development and prosperity. The notion is that you are giving them advanced technologies that will enable their economies to compete in the economy of the future, rather than saddling them with outdated technologies that we ourselves are trying to get off of. So I think, again, to thinking about these institutions, they really need to transition how they approach these countries so that the first set of money that is available is to support their development plans, but with clean sources of energy. So my last question is then to, you know, close out here. What do you think people should be watching for? Like Glasgow has been this big lead up. There was a delay. We're here. It's happening. More days to come. But I think some of the major announcements are already out there. So as you sit today, what do people need to be keeping on the radar? And what should they do to make sure that these commitments and these statements do ultimately mean something? The thing for people to take away from the negotiations is not being cynical or jaded or worried about the future of the planet because we haven't come to some global agreement. That's not the actual value of these talks. The actual value of these talks is that they serve as a forcing function for all of the commitments we just talked about, all kinds of action, small and large. And I think everybody should be keeping their eyes on whether or not these commitments that are being announced here in Glasgow are actually executed and we deliver in the real world because you know what we do and say and talk about in Glasgow is not what matters. What matters is what we do tomorrow and the day after and the day after because we have a long road to walk. On that note, everybody go make sure to follow Justin Gway and all the work you do at Sunrise Project. Uh, you and your colleagues are really keeping an eye on this and making sure that the commitments mean something. So thanks so much to you. And we'll let this uh, repair person who's trying to fix the bar <laughs> we're currently sitting in get back to work. Um, one of the things you have to do at Glasgow and at the cops is cheers. So Indeed. cheers to you. Thanks, Julia. <laughs> Thank you. To clarify one thing from my interview with Justin, the World Bank did not sign on to the agreement announced at COP26 to end international fossil fuel financing. 20 nations and five other development banks were among the signatories, but the World Bank was missing. Although we should note it has other climate goals. 
For America's part, it funds development projects around the world through vehicles like the World Bank, but also other avenues like the Import-Export Bank and the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation. So by signing on to this COP26 agreement, U.S. funding through those channels will stop. A couple other things to note about this landmark deal to end international public financing for fossil fuels is that the pledge does not apply to liquefied natural gas, a product the U.S. exports. Also, for perspective, the four top financiers of coal, oil, and gas around the world are Canada, Japan, Korea, and China, with the U.S. coming in fifth. Japan, Korea, and China notably did not sign on to this agreement and will continue to build oil and gas infrastructure abroad. So the spigot for public fossil fuel financing around the globe has not been shut off. But this new 20-nation commitment, which takes effect in 2023, could see a significant shift of funds from fossil fuels to clean energy. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy compared to the state's average. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, and together they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. MCE's efforts on climate justice and energy innovations have helped vulnerable populations qualify for programs like electric vehicles, energy storage, energy savings, and more. By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org. So as we've covered in this episode, there are different kinds of climate finance. There's private climate finance from banks and insurers, asset managers, and the like. And there's public climate finance coming from governments. As the COP26 negotiations come to a close, there's a spotlight on the public finance piece. More than a decade ago, rich nations pledged to pay $100 billion per year to help developing countries reduce emissions and adapt to climate change. That goal is currently on track to be met by 2023 which puts it three years behind the original 2020 deadline. That delay has undermined trust, as poor nations claim financing for climate mitigation and adaptation must be scaled up to 1.3 trillion per year by 2030 if they are to respond to climate change effectively. A draft of the latest COP agreement released Wednesday merely called on developed nations to urgently scale up climate aid rather than set new specific targets. But even if wealthy governments do decide to deliver more money coming out of the COP, many countries may see little benefit. And that's because they face enormous hurdles accessing the funds, even when available through vehicles like the UN's Green Climate Fund. In the final segment of this show, I speak to Ben Bartle, Project Director with the Rocky Mountain Institute's Climate Finance Access Network, or CFANS, about the challenges associated with putting climate dollars to work. Ben, thank you for joining me. Uh, I can see you on video, and I think you're in the the blue zone, I think, or in the blue zone or the green zone. Tell us where you are. Um, we'd love to get the latest from On the Scene at COP. Yeah, great to join you. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm currently in the blue zone, um, close to where the negotiations are happening uh, in the plenary rooms. 
some of which I'm allowed to have access to and, and others uh, are completely closed uh, only for negotiators. Maybe just to give everyone a sense of the scene, what is it like there? What are the negotiators doing today and what are they working on? Like what is the asset, the document, the piece of paper, whatever it is that everyone's going to cover at the end of this that is currently happening on the other side of the door is next to you? Well, there's a ton of things going on. For example, I mean, I've been trying to follow as much as possible the negotiations around uh, increasing the ambition for climate finance between 2021 and 2025. There's a lot going on in terms of the um, Article 6 on um, carbon markets, as well as the transparency um, mechanism under, under the Paris Agreement, um, which are some of the sticky sticky topics which haven't moved as far as uh, one would hope. Yeah. So that $100 billion you mentioned, could you just set the scene there? I understand this is a commitment that was made several years ago that developed countries would commit financing to developing and, and more countries that are in need of climate finance to transition their economies. Give us a little bit of the history. What happened since that big pledge was made? I think people have heard a lot of things about it not being met, but has there been more progress recently? Uh, give us the background there. Yeah. Basically, at, at COP15 uh, and back in 2009, uh, there was a climate finance pledge of $100 billion a year by 2020. It was agreed to support um, resilience, adaptation and energy transitions in, in developing countries. Uh, however, when regrettably we're, we're not quite there yet, they have been tracking that $100 billion and we're about $20 billion off that in 2020. Based on sort of information submitted by donors recently uh, and a report, which which I can go into in a little bit more detail, it looks like we have made significant progress towards that 100 billion goal, and we will further increase that in 2022. But it's looking like it will be met uh, in 2023, so three years late. And that's supposed to be every year. So they're meeting the 100 billion dollars, but then isn't the idea that it would be 100 billion every year after that? Yeah, exactly. So this this shortfall really started accumulating in 2020, um, and it's it's several billions of dollars uh, short. Um, you know, these are achievable amounts of money and governments have spent trillions on COVID-19 fiscal recovery packages. So it shows, you know, their ability to act in an emergency. Uh, and quite frankly, this this is an emergency. Yeah. So you mentioned a report there. What did the report find? The report was um, requested in 2015 and uh, was led most recently by uh, the Canadian government uh, and the German government. The roadmap to the 100 billion indicates, as I said, that we will reach that amount in 2023. However, it doesn't provide any robust commitment to increase the share of financed adaptation, uh, which is a really sticky point that during the COP negotiations. And it, it provides no indication of whether or not there'll be more support in the form of grants uh, rather than loan finance to developing countries. You know, and to be honest, it's, it's a bit unacceptable that the poorer countries have done little to cause a climate crisis are really being forced to take out loans to protect themselves from uh, surging climate disasters like droughts and storms. I remember when adaptation was a little bit of a bad word, though. It's kind of interesting. People wanted to focus on mitigation and not say, oh, we're just going to accept that climate change is happening and focus on adaptation. But you're saying the dialogue on that has shifted to the point where we also need to have some financing on the adaptation side. And you're saying that's missing today? Yeah, absolutely. Well, at the COP right now, there is negotiations going on for the adaptation goal um, to 2025, I believe. And we're quite a far way off that. Uh, if you look at the Green Climate Fund, for example, it has a target of 50% funding to mitigation and 50% adaptation. Uh, and we're not quite there yet. 
Um, particularly worrying is the fact that funding to adaptation in small island developing states is only around 2% of the total climate finance that has been dedicated to date. And these are the countries that are going to face the biggest uh, impacts of, of climate change. So we need to make sure that at least 50% of that 100 billion a year is going towards the adaptation, particularly those most vulnerable countries. And just to put a finer point on this, when we talk about these top line numbers, these billions, is that coming straight from the U.S. Treasury, for instance, to another nation? Or what are the vehicles through which this financing is moving? So there are various different vehicles. There are multilateral and bilateral sources to the GCF. Quite a significant amount of funding uh, has been promised. Uh, the GCF is the leading entity to disperse climate funds to developing countries. But then there's also quite a significant amount that goes bilaterally, meaning directly from developed countries to developing countries to develop individual projects and programs. So the GCF, the Global Climate Fund, that's the top line. And then you're saying bilateral agreements. Do the bilateral ones get included into that $100 billion you know, sum? Both bilateral and multilateral finance is included in that $100 billion. And it includes funding that also goes to the other climate funds, such as the Clean Investment Fund, uh, which typically uses the uh, multilateral development banks to DFIs, development finance institutions, to funnel that funding. So what are some successes in recent days? I think I've seen the UK, Canada in recent weeks, and even at COP head up their commitments. The US, I understand, Secretary Janet Yellen did speak at COP and talked about a quadrupling of US finance under President Biden. What are some of the highlights? Do I have that right? Are we seeing some increases in commitments just this recent week? Yeah, absolutely. There's been commitments before COP. A lot of countries were getting their act together and, and, and increasing. Some of them actually quadrupling the total funding to climate finance. Um, and at the COP, we've had further commitments. The COP26 presidency is actually compiling these commitments from 2021 to 2025. Just a couple of high-level examples. Australia's committed a 50% increase in climate finance to $1.5 billion over the period 2020 to 2025, um, $1.5 billion Australian dollars. Uh, Canada has also doubled their commitments to $5.3 billion over five years. Denmark hugely scaled up their grant-based climate finance to at least 25% of their overseas development assistance. Um, that sort of corresponds to more than US $500 million annually. European Commission as well has also increased their expenditure for the period 2021 to 2027. And now the EU's core budget will exceed 28 billion euros for that period in climate finance. Germany, France, Ireland, Japan, the Netherlands, Switzerland, the UK, they've all increased their commitments. The UK in particular, uh, one of the most significant ones, has committed to doubling its commitment from its budget to 11.6 billion over the period 2021 to 2025. And my little home country, New Zealand, is now paying its fair share as well in climate finance, and they've quadrupled their commitments and particularly focusing on countries and small island developing states in the Pacific. Wow. Dare I say that gives me a sense of optimism. You know, I just walked through a protest on the way to this uh, hotel I'm at to speak with you across town. And, you know, there's still calls for action, but it seems to be being heard to some extent. Of course, we have to follow up the next day and see that this money goes through, which gets to my next question to you of how is this money received? I think you've written for RMI about how some of the, say, small island nations don't know how to utilize this money or can't access it, even though the pledges have been made to give it. So could you walk us through sort of what has to happen after a pledge comes through? What is the next step? Is it identifying projects like we need wind turbines here or, you know, some kind of alternative fuel there? How does that play out? How do we go from, again, commit to systems to implement the commitments to then seeing something happen in the real world. 
that's the $100 billion question right there. So transforming these economies into, into low carbon, climate resilient and sustainable development pathways really poses an enormous challenge to these countries, particularly for the global South countries um, with limited resources and capacity. You know, these are the small island developing states, least developed countries and African states. You know, And, and although, as, as I said, the volume of climate finance mobilized by the developed world to support these countries has increased substantially over the past decade, the system for delivering and accessing that finance has become highly complex, burdensome, and time-consuming for these countries to, to secure funding. So there's really an urgent need there to, to improve the way climate finance is accessed and delivered, particularly to those countries that are, that are most vulnerable and the capacity-constrained countries. Some countries may have the ability to navigate the, this complex global climate finance system. However, most of them face institutional capacity limitations and, and really rely on technical assistance to, to do a number of things, to identify the sources and the instruments for delivering that climate finance, to cultivate relationships um, with climate finance providers. It's quite difficult with limited numbers of staff to do that. And then thirdly, really to identify pipelines of bankable projects and structures for climate finance investments you know, to, to meet those priority needs in country. Traditionally, externally led, consultant-led, fly-in, fly-out type of technical support to address those issues, it just can't deliver at scale and it, we can't continue with this old model of technical assistance delivery. So I know that RMI has put together the Climate Finance Access Network to try and address this problem. Can you walk us through what you're doing there? Yeah, so the result of these highly complex systems to access climate finance is really a bottleneck that's frustrating for both recipient countries and providers alike, you know, and it stalls these mitigation and adaptation efforts. You know, and, and several initiatives have emerged over the years to support countries to achieve, you know, climate investments and objectives, and, and many have done so through climate finance readiness and embedded advisors. However, you know, few of these advisors have actually received training in project-level financial structuring. Most uh, of these programs, unfortunately, lack working relationships with donor institutions, decision makers in countries, um, and advisors doing similar work in other countries. So, yeah, as a result, RMI went out to the field and conducted some studies of over 120 people in 45 developing countries, uh, also with other international institutions that work in the space, to try and figure out what was needed most to unlock those bottlenecks. We found that there was demand for qualified advisors, you know, that far exceeds the supply of them. Um, we found that too few programs focused on project and program level finance, and there was limited coordination among sort of short-term initiatives. So that's really where the Climate Finance Access Network came from. CFAN aims to, to unlock and accelerate that climate finance scale, um, and we'll do so by cultivating a network of highly skilled and embedded climate finance advisors. And they'll work with countries to develop the lasting national capacity and, and maximize adaptation and, and mitigation outcomes. Basically, the, the model will cultivate the pool of advisors specifically trained to deliver on, on the mandates of those countries, on their nationally determined contributions, their target projects and pipelines. And then we will connect those advisors to both donor institutions and other experts regionally and around the world. You talked about how the commitments we've seen come from the investment community uh, under Mark Carney's initiative, GFANS, and the $130 trillion of assets under management that these entities represent and their commitment now to go net zero. How does that link up with the work that you're doing between nations and trying to mobilize the dollars coming from governments? Will you be connecting all of the players and all of the kinds of commitments we're seeing in the climate finance space? 
Absolutely. And it's all good and well that we have these hundreds of trillions of dollars newly committed. But the, the issue here is in structuring those projects, making them financially viable in developing country contexts, and particularly difficult where there is limited capacity on the ground to do that. Our climate finance advisors will go through a rigorous training, which includes financial modeling and developing you know, public-private partnerships to ensure that we're able to secure the type of funding that's coming from those new trillion-dollar commitments. So you will support the private sector as well as, as governments who are committing funds? Absolutely. I mean, the, the network is working sort of in between public and private sector. Um, whilst some of our advisors will be uh, seconded or embedded within um, ministries of finance, other advisors will be sitting with national institutions known as direct access entities. We'll also be providing training in kind of what's known as a right shot with private sector stakeholders who will sit together in a room with the public sector and basically get to know the sort of pain points that each other are facing uh, and try and structure investment proposals together. So we're speaking now at basically the midpoint of the COP negotiations. It'll start to get into the nitty gritty now with uh, governments and negotiators finalizing deals. Take us forward in future. What do you want to see happen next? What has happened now that you think we should all be watching for and pushing for perhaps more? in the weeks and months to come. At this COP, we've really seen a major shift towards, you know, dedicated financial windows on agreements, taking stock on what 2030 looks like, what we've achieved so far and what's necessary and possible and already underway sort of to, to limit our warming to 1.5 degrees. You know, we've had these renewed commitments. Tons of countries have quadrupled their commitments to climate finance. Now we need to move into implementation. I, I feel that this COP is the last COP of commitments and we need to really start moving into that phase of implementation. And there's a couple of interesting climate finance related commitments and programs that have come out of the COP. One is the US President's Emergency Plan for adaptation and resilience, which will support countries and communities uh, in, in vulnerable situations around the world in their efforts to adapt and, and manage to the impacts of climate change. It's a $3 billion package annually by uh, 2024. And importantly, among other things, the funding will work to strengthen capacity to access climate finance for adaptation and develop bankable investments, which are striving to, to mobilize that private capital. This is where we really need the additional support and capacity development, particularly around adaptation and private sector, which to date, we haven't really achieved what we need to. The other initiative is by the UK government. It's the Task Force for Climate Finance Access, and it was a $100 million program led by the UK, but also supported by Fiji, and it will be trialled in a number of other countries, including Rwanda and Uganda. And it's important now that we've had these commitments and we've got these financial windows, that we actually start putting them into action and have some agreed upon timelines, delivery targets, in particular, what they intend to achieve, what finance can be leveraged, and in particular from the private sector, with the funding that's being provided. And ultimately, then what projects get put in the ground or or forests get protected, right? At some point, this becomes work that we have to see happen in real life, either on the technology side or some kind of nature-based solution. Is that where this goes next, is bringing in uh, the startups and entrepreneurs of the world and getting to that kind of work? Um, do you work on that side of it or do you focus on commitments only and kind of leave that to other players? No, absolutely. While we're here trying to increase the level of ambition, and you know we're, we're talking to various stakeholders for that, both in the public and private side of things, we are, at the end of the day, looking at securing finance for projects on the ground. You know, mangrove roots in the ground, as some people say, for adaptation projects, and sometimes concrete on the ground when that comes to, you know, sort of your more infrastructure-based projects. What it looks like on the ground, I mean, it, it, there's this climate finance bottleneck, and it's extremely difficult to unlock. 
but with the additional capacity on the on the ground in countries that's necessary technical expertise that's necessary we can start seeing the funding being secured and more funding flowing to countries particularly where it's needed most for their um, priority adaptation and mitigation targets well if done right and we'll all be watching for it maybe we can even just maybe build better societies healthier societies that serve people in more equitable ways i mean hopefully that's the vision that everything committed this week starts to achieve and i know you'll be working hard on it at rmi so Thanks so much for taking a few minutes on the sidelines of COP. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. And that is the end of this dispatch from COP26, says a very jet-lagged Julia Piper. Thanks so much to our editor of this show, Kyle McDonald, and to our producer, Maria Virginia Alano. Thanks to the USC Schwarzenegger Institute for their support and to our friends and partners at Canary Media. And thanks also to you for tuning in. We really appreciate it. And while you're here, hit subscribe so you catch all of the Political Climate episodes. You can also find us on Twitter at P-O-L-I underscore climate if you want to tweet at us and share your thoughts. We'll be back in two weeks. Until soon.